Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk. Let's share information. Let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's our Stay Well, Play Well platform. Episode 14, Season 2. I'm calling it Spiritual Sustenance. I appreciate my co-producers, Justine Sedke and Alan J. Tomasetti, for being with me in the pod and guiding this conversation. We're taking a cue from Khalil Gibran in his 1927 book, The Prophet, and you are our friend on the roadside. I'll be unpacking some pretty big trunks of wellness advice, not only from Gibran, but I'll be reading from A Course in Miracles, as well as quoting that very sharp theologian C.S. Lewis. I went to the vault. I pulled out some works I have arranged when life got too unbearable for words. Who doesn't love Lauridsen's O Monium Mysterium played on any instrument? It's a choral work, and this is from a personal video shoot I made in 2010. I'm playing all the parts off the score, and this was a project that came out of unspeakable loss and pain. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I'm so glad you're here. Okay, I'll divulge my journey of being spiritually motivated in my musical life, but here's a fair warning to my friends who, like me, like me, grew up very liberally and with an atheist father. Go ahead and run now. (laughs) Turn off the podcast. But if you're ready for something interesting, miracle-mindedness, source teaching, things like that. This podcast is for you. I I want you to be inspired through something bigger than you and the mind and the body. I'll call it source. Okay. Here are some examples, musically speaking, about composers who thought about source. Who was the most well-known composer we can think about? J.S. Bach. J.S. Bach wrote his mass a year before he died, and this was after a lifetime of composing weekly, sacred, and secular music. And you can tell that composers are very connected to key signatures as a spiritual power, almost, when they're writing. Composers choose these key signatures to evoke passion, and sometimes vivid dreams come out of their um, music. You know, they want to recall their connection to source. Mahler, Gustav Mahler, wrote his second symphony and he called it the resurrection. Did you know he has a deliberate 
five-minute pause between the first and the second movements of this symphony so we can, quote, stare into the face of emptiness, end quote. There's a Dies Irae plain chant incorporated into the first movement of this second symphony, which, quote, foretells the day of wrath when heaven and earth are shaken and consumed by fire. And Mahler's third symphony, all about nature, Mahler said the entire symphony describes, quote, all stages of evolution in a stepwise ascent. It begins with inanimate nature and ascends to the love of God, end quote. Some examples of living composers that have been composing for whatever or whomever they consider source. Uh, Take Christopher Caliendo. In 1992, my friend Christopher Caliendo received a call from the Vatican announcing a commission as the first American composer in Vatican history to compose a vocal orchestral work for the prestigious Encounters of Sacred Music Festival. It's televised and broadcast live in the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, Italy. Then he received a second commission in 1995. Today, the entire four-act musical drama is called The Mystic Saints. And the newest classical music Grammy winner is Richard Daniel Poor's dramatic oratorio, The Passion of Yeshua a work which has evolved over the last 25 years for this composer and an intensely personal telling of the final hours of Christ on earth. It incorporates texts from the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian gospels, inspiring extraordinarily beautiful music that stresses the need for human compassion and forgiveness. Would you like to hear my ghost story? Or as I call it, the story of source? Well, it's about the Bach cello suites and the prelude to the fifth cello suite. So when I first opened the Bach cello suites, I was fresh back from performing my duties as part of the jury of the sixth Kobe International Flute Competition. Professor Paul Meisen, also a jury member, had given me a copy of his arrangement of the Bach cello suites in treble clef. And in the back of this edition 
was the Bach partita for solo flute. He was making the point that perhaps Bach's cello writing and flute writing could be interchangeable. And at this particular lecture, we were listening to a cellist play the Aleman from Bach's partita for solo flute. It was amazing to hear it on the cello. It was eye-opening for sure. So I took the cello suites with me wherever I went, playing them and deciding which I liked and which weren't really for the flute. And I kept writing in Paul Meisen's edition. I never knew why all the editions took the time to slur everything for the flute in treble clef or why at the end of the first cello suite, the G major prelude, that the flute was forced to go up into the stratosphere to a high G. That to me was quite harsh. Okay, so I'm playing the Bach cello suites during 2006 to 2009, and at that time I had a few rocky roads to go down. Divorce leads to new roads, and I had taken a route where, looking back, it was fateful and full of death. I was full of hope for the future of my new love life, and I was excited to be with someone new, right? And so I was visiting a professional friend in Austin, Texas, and that afternoon I began to play the prelude. And a few lines in, I felt this presence. It was very foreboding, a little scary, like it was a ghost. I kept playing, and this wave of emotion started flowing through my body, from the front, through me, towards the back, and I was beginning to tear up. But I didn't stop playing. I kept going. And then I started thinking, was this the ghost of J.S. Bach? Is this the ghost of my mother? You know, who is this? I started to cry. I mean, looking back, I can say, was it the ghost of the future? Was it telling me what was about to happen? I was going to experience, eight months later, the unconscionable suicide of the man I was dating. No, I didn't blame myself, and no, I didn't know it was coming. Music was moving me in a spiritual and emotional wave that took hold of me that day and gave me strength later on in my weak moments. Music has always been the voice of angels, guiding me and following me as I go through life. During the healing from this tragic suicide, I was blessed to receive assistance from friends, yogis, priests, and healers of all types. My meridians were moved. I was put into a routine of exercise and people came from around the country to sit on my couch just to make sure I was okay. And clearly, I was not. I went into my next relationship, thinking I could heal other people, which clearly isn't my calling. We can only change ourselves. I spent, um, no, I wasted for very long years in what I can only call a dismal mistake of a relationship. You know, Source had something else in mind for me. Writer Cheryl Emerson, my friend who you met in season one of this podcast, says this, all flags are orange until you turn them red. So one day I turned all the flags in that terrible relationship to red. I kicked them out. I played a concert and I came home 
and on my way to bed, I opened my email. And there, staring me in the face, was an email from Jeb Bogue, my old best friend who I had asked for every time I played a concert in Delaware. His wife had died from breast cancer about a year ago. He had received my invites, but never felt appropriate until now to reach out. And he wanted to know, how was I doing? There it is, box fifth cello suite prelude. I began playing it as part of my concert repertoire for several years. I felt it was a spiritual exercise. I got to perform, making sure I was thinking in a way that was based in source, not in ego. I also discovered that meeting Jeb again and moving into who I really was meant to be was taking part in me musically too. I discovered I had more projects to bring to the table, and it was then that the Philippe Gobert project came to be. Jeb and I got married, and it was the year my new Haynes flute came into my life. After a few years of marriage, I knew I could keep up the work I was meant to do and do it in a more spiritual way. I began creating concerts with themes and filming them and making plays out of them, flute musicals. My expression became rooted in praying before I walked down on stage and not really caring about the audience, but my relationship with my source so that others might begin to connect to theirs. I created a virtual reality experience with a uh, performing arts technology professor. And I, I've gone more into my self-expression than I ever have. No permission necessary. Two years ago, I was listening to Gabby Bernstein talk about a metaphysical course in a book called A Course in Miracles. I knew I had been given that book. And wait, wasn't it in the basement? Wasn't that the book that I had tried to start? Wasn't that a book I had turned to and yet dropped it? 
Well, there was one issue 20 years ago when it was given to me. This newly baptized Christian still had issues with source. A course in miracles began with two professors at Columbia University's College of Medical Physicians and Surgeons in New York. They were not getting along. And in order to find another way to communicate, one professor began writing down for the other highly symbolic dreams and strange images and eventually a voice. It said, this is a course in miracles. It seemed to them to be a special assignment and it was. Written in 1975, it's never been advertised. And the Foundation for Inner Peace has been established in New York City for this manuscript. It's a workbook for students and a workbook for teachers. It's metaphysical teachings. I opened it up to lesson number one for students and read some of the chapters. And the beginning is uh, something like this, so I can understand if you're having trouble getting it. It's also the reason for my bliss. Nothing can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. See, the Course in Miracles makes a fundamental distinction between the real and the unreal, knowledge and perception. When you've been taught in the world of perception, you're caught up in a dream, according to the Course. It's Source's goal to help us escape from the dream world and reversing our thinking and unlearn our mistakes. Forgiveness is a great learning aid in the Course in Miracles. Here's how I get some of my daily dose. So the principles, some of them are, there is no order of difficulty in miracles. One is not harder or bigger than the other. They are all the same. All expressions of love are maximal. Miracles as such do not matter. The only thing that matters is their source, which is far beyond evaluation. Miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. The real miracle is the love that inspires them. In this sense, everything that comes from love is a miracle. See, those were the three principles, the very first three principles of the meaning of miracles.
Now I'll divulge some of my personal stories. I was born and raised a Unitarian Universalist. My parents met in the church. And it was just a family to me growing up. It was an amazing place to go every Sunday. I have to say that source, that infinite wisdom bigger than me with divine timing, led me through amazing times as a human and a musician. When I felt forsaken and lost and misguided and tempted and hurt, I had this little voice inside of me that let me know all would be well. Fear not. You've just been through it, acted out, lost, ruined that relationship. But, you know, the voice kept me playing the flute. It kept me playing my heart out. And I relied on a bigger power to get me through. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that there was more to everything than I could see. I had always heard that God's light doesn't shine farther than your feet. So I walked in the direction of my own light. What happens, though, when we close our eyes and and walk towards the light inside? We are left with where our hearts will take us and our higher consciousness will take us. And all that music that we're playing and singing and listening to, it's also meant as worship. It's like a prayer. They say singing a hymn is praying twice. At 23, I discovered the yoga mat. In yoga practice, there's a beautiful honoring, uh, greeting, uh, and and a goodbye at the end of the um, practice. Everyone puts their hands in prayer position at their heart center, bow, and say namaste. I honor the divine light in you. It's a release of judgment and a welcoming peace. At 26, my mother died from breast cancer and liver cancer, and a year later, my father from pneumonia and 15 years of being an Alzheimer's patient. And I know I took many wrong turns in the ways of love and trust. And so I did what I knew to do when I trusted in my music. Professor and theologian C.S. Lewis says, If you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, people who turn back the soonest is the most progressive. That turning back led my emotional spirit straight to the door of an Episcopal church. Nobody brought this born and bred Unitarian Universalist to a church to meet Jesus and God face to face. No, it was spirit. And then I realized how how profoundly impacted by spirit uh, these composers I mentioned were to me. I heard this organist at this Episcopal church. He was the premier organist in the South. And I became a huge fan. And I took on the work that, as C.S. Lewis called, quote, tough as nails. I took catechism classes. I learned a ton and I got baptized at age 32. And then life took on a whole new meaning. Michigan and heartbreak. So I began seeking musical inspirations through being spiritual, listening to 
pianist George Winston or composer Eric Whitaker, Native American flutist Carlos Nakai. It all brought me closer to my source. Now, every time I perform Trail of Tears, I feel the energy of the people who were in that march, that march of genocide and historic racism. Every time I play Mozart, I remember playing in a Hindu shrine in Japan, out in the middle of the water as the sun was setting. Source. That infinite wisdom bigger than me with divine timing has guided me through amazing times. I am a member of an Episcopal church, and being in church is all about community. I miss being in community physically. It's especially hard to see everyone singing in the choir virtually. I have to say that playing in church during the pandemic has helped a lot. I go in on a Wednesday and record for a service that will air in a couple of weeks. It's aired on YouTube, so we can go back and reflect, after all this has passed, on how we got through it with faith and perseverance. I've been an advocate of turning to a higher power when I'm needing help in my musical setting, My higher self doesn't judge me. It's just they're waiting for me to return to it. Many of my friends study the Tao Te Ching. This text concerns itself with the Tao, the way, and how it is expressed by virtue, the day. Specifically, the text emphasizes the virtues of naturalness and non-action, and people live their lives by living in harmony with this book. Many friends study the Old Testament of the Bible. Many friends study the New Testament of the Bible. Many friends study the Quran, the recitation. It's the central religious text of Islam, beloved by Muslims. It's believed to be a revelation from God, Allah. My father, who I mentioned in the beginning, he read the Christian Science Monitor a lot. And he went to the Unitarian Church, but he was a self-professed atheist. So he'd go to the reading room. I I felt like he really had a big-time issue with letting go within source, and he wanted to know all he could. Very logical. I know he felt his source had abandoned him at times, like many do. He had suffered the death of a child, and he had been through divorces. My father was quiet, but I knew he had heartache. He found a great, great love in my mother and in me and in Source.
I'd like to leave you with three readings from Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. In the book, Al-Mustafa is the chosen and the beloved. He's been waiting for 12 years for his ship to come in. And as it's coming in, all the people of the town are coming to him saying, oh, but you're leaving and your ship is coming. And, and he has so much to say. So he gets asked all these questions about things in life. A teacher says, speak to us of teaching. And he said, no man can reveal to you aught but that which already lies half asleep in the dawning of your knowledge. The teacher who walks in the shadow of the temple among his followers gives not of his wisdom, but rather of his faith and his lovingness. If he is indeed wise, he does not bid you enter the house of his wisdom, but rather leads you to the threshold of your own mind. The astronomer may speak to you of his understanding of space, but he cannot give you his understanding. The musician may sing to you of the rhythm which is in all space, but he cannot give you the ear which arrests the rhythm, nor the voice that echoes it. And he who is versed in the science of numbers can tell of the regions of weight and measure, but he cannot conduct you thither. For the vision of one man lends not its wings to another man. And even as each one of you stands alone in God's knowledge, so much each one of you be alone in his knowledge of God and in his understanding of the earth. And then a scholar said, speak of talking. And he answered saying, you talk when you cease to be at peace with your thoughts. And when you can no longer dwell in the solitude of your heart, you live in your lips and sound is a diversion and a pastime. And in much of your talking, thinking is half murdered. For thought is a bird of space that in a cage of words may indeed unfold its wings, but cannot fly. There are those among you who seek the talkative through fear of being alone. The silence of aloneness reveals to their eyes their naked selves and they would escape. And there are those who talk and without knowledge or forethought reveal a truth which they themselves do not understand. And there are those who have the truth within them, but they tell it not in words. In the bosom of such as these, the spirit dwells in rhythmic silence. When you meet your friend on the roadside or in the marketplace, let the spirit in your lips move and direct your tongue. Let the voice within your voice speak to the ear of his ear. For his soul will keep the truth of your heart as the taste of the wine is remembered when the color is forgotten and the vessel is no more. And the priestess said, Speak to us of prayer. And he answered, saying, You pray in your distress and in your need. Would that you might pray also in the fullness of your joy and in your days of abundance. For what is prayer but the expansion of yourself into the living ether? And if it is for your comfort to pour your darkness into space, it is also for your delight to pour forth the dawning of your heart. And if you cannot but weep when your soul summons you to prayer, she should spur you again and yet again, though weeping until you shall come laughing. When you pray, you rise to meet in the air those who are praying at that very hour and whom save in prayer you may not meet. Therefore, let your visit to that temple, invisible, 
be for naught but ecstasy and sweet communication. For if you should enter the temple for no other purpose than asking, you shall not receive. And if you should enter into it, humble yourself, you shall not be lifted. Or even if you should enter into it to beg for the good of others, you shall not be heard. It is enough that you enter the temple invisible. I cannot teach you how to pray in words. God listens not to your words, save when he himself utters them through your lips. And I cannot teach you the prayer of the seas and the forests and the mountains. But you who are born of the mountains and the forests and the seas can find their prayer in your heart. And if you listen, if you but listen in the stillness of the night, you shall hear them saying in silence, Our God, who art our winged self, it is thy will in us that willeth. It is thy desire in us that desireth. It is thy urge in us that would turn our nights which are thine into days which are thine also. We cannot ask thee for aught, but for thou knowest our needs before they are born in us. Thou art our need, and in giving us more of thyself, thy givest us all. If you've made it this far into the podcast, then you know a little bit more about me now than you did before. Join us next time on Porter Flute Pod, and my friend Christopher Caliendo will be with us. I mentioned him earlier in this podcast. You can find more about me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. And on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, I'm Porter Flute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.